Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you were listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader, which means presumably you're an incurable reader. Congratulations on that. We are here to discuss a month in the country, J.L. Carr's lovely little novel. We're going to discuss the second half of the book last week. As you probably know, we discussed the first 68 pages or so. Today, we are going to discuss page 69 through page 135, roughly, depending on your edition, which means that we are going to discuss the end of the book. And then uh, just a little bit of uh, housekeeping here. Next week, we are off because we are all at a conference together. And then the week after that, we will do the Q&A. So Heidi, you're in charge of the uh, the Q&A uh, thread on Facebook. So I had Captain. We get that when up. should I put that up? Go ahead, just put it up. Friday, tomorrow, when this episode goes up, and then that'll give people two weeks to put their questions in. All right. This so. is exciting. Heidi, how are you? I'm doing so great. Sitting on my porch. The weather's perfect. It's summer. I'm warm enough. She has like two months of Colorado summer that she actually doesn't complain about. That's, right. <laughs> mm-hmm, that's exactly right. So enjoy it, guys. Uh, yeah, well, well, we can't. Uh, but, but next well, week you'll be in Charleston. Enjoy my inner no, I, peace. This right, is what I'm saying. That, that's what I meant too. Uh, and then next week you'll have, be able to go to South Carolina where it's going to be uh, straight out of um, Dante's Inferno. Tim. I'll still want to eat outside, you guys. <laughs> whatever. Uh, we'll do We'll do whatever you want. Uh, You're the best. And Tim and I will sweat. Uh, Tim, um, how is your sweating situation right now? It's significant. I asked Galen yesterday how she would feel about me wearing a summer neck scarf. You know, like those hey, things that you, that you put like in. Like a neckerchief? Like What's a neckerchief. Yeah. Is it to hide the sweat? It's both, I to, think, to, to absorb, absorb the sweat, <laughs> and if you put it in the freezer, it keeps you cool for like you know ten minutes, first fifteen minutes. I have but a that little, is just melty <laughs> after that. What did Galen say? I think she gave me approval, but I could tell there was some discomfort. So there what was are you going to do? Kind of like, I think I'm going to try it, and you know, if she overrules it then it's settled. Honeymoon's over, Heidi. Honeymoon's over. He's wearing <laughs> wet neckerchiefs and she doesn't want him to. Wow. It's part of the negotiation process. But she's not that, exactly saying she doesn't want him to. She's just dropping hints that she doesn't want him to. Well, I don't think that she's like, it's a hard and firm decision for her. I think she's just kind of like, I'm I'm open. She's right. Okay. My question is like, why is this the year? Like you've, you've lived some life. You've because I'm late before. arriving. I'm late arriving. That's what's going on. A late bloomer. Did you see I'm like a late an bloomer. Instagram ad or something? Is that what happened? No, I actually saw no, a guy in this little shared office That's space. True. And I saw a guy wearing a neckerchief and I was, and he was wearing a t-shirt and I was like, that looks kind of cool. Both, like in both senses. In both senses. <laughs> I wonder if I could pull cool that off. Part. Yeah. And I, what do you mean, except for the cool I part? Mean, Can we revisit that? I feel that? like it's cool in the sense of like it will cool you off mm. and yeah. less cool and in the other sense. What? Well, it's going to look so cool. Hey, Tim's a theater guy. I know. And uh, I feel like classic theater good, guy. Cool. That's a good reminder. That's a good and reminder. And I'm in an artistic field. It's, I mean, I think to some degree. Writing speeches? <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? Don't be mean. Don't be mean. 
<laughs> that's not I, mean. I just seriously was. That's do you a know very, what our division? You know what? This is a very well-dressed field. This is what I'm saying. Like if you are at Westfall Gold, it seems like you'd have to be like looking, Tim, looking sharp. She's so doing it. She's doing a, a great job one. saving, uh, saving that comment. I will say that's what I meant. That's because of what I meant. Uh-huh. Okay, what here's I mean. insider information. The head of the creative side of our business. I'm not kidding you. Do you know what he wears to every Ask meeting? Up. No. He wears a black on black ensemble ensemble. And it's not even colored and there's no cuffs. There's no anything. He looks like um what's his name from the Grateful Dead, the fam- and Drew, what's his name? I don't know. Anyway, I don't listen to that. Grateful the basis for the Grateful Dead. I don't either. I don't either. I but come cool. on, he's fame. Hello. <laughs> I feel like Heidi. Hey, do guys, you and I have no, some like we don't have business any issues to work out? We don't have I any just, business, guys. I need I need help no. with something though. What? Yeah. I'm gonna, I'm just gonna step in between you here, and you can help me solve a problem. That thing that fancy Victorian dudes and Edwardian dudes wore the eye, the one the eye thing. What do they call that? A, a monocle. Prince- a, a monocle. A monocle, but there's like another name for it, isn't there? It's not a Prince Nez, is it? Prin- no, because that's 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 okay, the so what's the difference between the Prince Nez yeah. and the monocle? Oh, okay. That, okay, that's what the difference is. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And no, we sense. have no issues. You and I have no issues. I I might have issues with, with the neckerchief, the- but I do actually want you to be comfortable. So and next so week, when Tim I, shows up at the conference with his uh, dr- dripping neckerchief, um, then we'll be able to have this, this conversation all over again. All over again. <laughs> but at least we we'll have some oysters. If I can appropriate a neckerchief in time that suits my high standards of fashion, I'm going to wear it to one day of the Circe conference. And do you know what I'm going to get in return? Apologies. I thought you were going to say compliments. Maybe so. I, I will. I will. I will gladly eat humble pie and apologize to you, even publicly. I'll post it on social media. I'll bring it up in the next at podcast. one of your speeches. Although David will bring it up first at one of your um, speeches sure, that I, I would absolutely do that. But, but if I, she's proven I, wrong, you I, know what I will, she's going to do. Will have to be a sincere conversion. <laughs> if she's proven wrong and she's not converted, then she's going to take that humble pie and she's going to. Throw it, it in your face. Throw it in my face. face. No, have do that. Humble. And it's not going that. to. That's not my style. My neckerchief will get soiled when that happens. Yeah. Then no, you're going to have That's not like, going to happen. But I have might like just meringue in your, in your neckerchief. <laughs> meringue in your neckerchief. I, I do I'm, like meringue. I'm not I'm, wasting any meringue. <laughs> there might be some other things that I would hey, shove in your neckerchief. A, a, a good insult <laughs> is never a waste. Okay. Um, right. We are here to discuss a month in the country. And for the life of me, I do not have any segue. Uh, in, there is no segue. We've actually, me. yeah, the geography yeah, is barren. It's been a while since we've gone on this long. Exactly. Like small talk. You know, it is not because we don't care about this book or don't want to talk about it. We were all pretty enthusiastic about it, you know, halfway through. And I mean, Heidi and I have read it. Heidi just read the whole thing in, in one day. And I've this is my second or third time or whatever it is going through the book. Don't even really know. Tim, this is your first time. So I, you made some predictions last week and I want to come back to you and figure out whether you're feeling as um, positive towards this book now that you have come to the conclusion mm. of it. Mm. Gladly. 
Wait, are you coming go, to me go now? Ahead, go ahead. You yeah, said please. I'm going to, and I didn't know if that meant at some point in the near future or during the podcast, or if it meant right now. Um, well, you, to be fair, uh, I did probably say that, and uh, then somewhere along the way forgot what was happening. And so let's just go ahead and do that now. The space-time continuum kind of folded on you. It did, yeah. Much like your uh, neckerchief we folding about your shoulders. Folded about my, yeah. 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 So there was a segue there after all. Yeah, we're working it back in. <laughs> okay, I'm trying to remember. It's funny when speaking of space you time, have a vision. No, no, no. No, I was thinking like um, before I went to Paris for the first time, I had an idea of what Paris looked like. Uh, and then I got to Paris and it looked different than my mind's imagination. And I can't go back to what my mind's eye imagination was pre-visit. And I kind of in that situation now, like, I don't remember what my predictions were. Mm. And I don't think that it, you do either. Well, I wasn't listening when you said them. Oh, that that's <laughs> okay. All right. This is another episode where David and Heidi off the air are like, you know what? Let's get him this time. Yeah, we, we, we didn't. We Let's don't, get we him. Talk. We, we he... Definitely. He is going to roll out with some new fashion recipe <laughs> and let's just smash it right out of the gate. Yeah. And those predictions. You, you predicted, um, you predicted, well, you had some thoughts about uh, Alice. Oh, did I? I had some. Yeah, you had thoughts about Alice. I did. I didn't I think they were going to get together. I didn't think they were going to get together. You I never thought that. So. Never thought that. In fact, I was very confident they were not going to get together. Well, you were proven right. I was right. So, okay, let's just go back to the original question. Let's okay. just forget about your prognostications from last week. Yeah. Because <laughs> we already did anyway, all of us. So what, um, I'm sure there's listeners that are like have their their notebook where they keep track of your your predictions and yeah, then they, right. they, they grade you. So if that is you, Jesse the Brown, close reads please betting let us pool. Know. <laughs> yeah, the close exactly. reads betting pool is, yeah, a hive of... <laughs> Lost, lost cash. <laughs> do, do you, <laughs> oh, Heidi just. <laughs> uh, Tim, do you have your phone in front of you? Yeah, I do. Yeah, Heidi just sent the group a picture. <laughs> okay, we probably need to. I haven't seen it yet. Of, we probably need to see of somebody wearing like tossing a scarf above their shoulders. <laughs> We have to post this on Facebook uh, yeah, so like when you will listen to the thing, you're like, what is this? Oh my gosh. Oh, uh, that is so nice. That is so nice. This is this this is just this episode of the problem. Off you, the rails. Do you feel as positively about this book? Yes. As okay, yes, you do. I All do. Right, well, yeah. we can end that. We should probably just end the show now. Okay. That's a wrap. Um, well, what do you think? Okay, we talked about some of the things that he does well. What in the end, for, what, what does he do well as far as the whole story? We talked about his prose. We talked about the way he's stationing this book as a post-World War I book, a book responding to modernism, to the age that these people are living in, to, to the experiences that they're living, living through. So we, we, we were able to talk about some of that. When we get to the end of the book, though, what has he done well in terms of crafting a whole narrative? Like what really stands out for you? And uh, Heidi, we'll let Tim go first and then, and then you can jump in because I assume you're going to want to insult whatever he says. <laughs> okay, this, this book, it feels to me like some books close to a point, like they kind of narrow mm. and you get to the end 
And there's a point, I'm not saying necessarily it's a moral, maybe it is a moral, but you get a sense of like, this is where our characters have gone. This is where they've arrived. Like, I think a book like um, Anna Karenina is a great example. We arrive at a point, it's kind of a double point. Anna, spoiler alert, dies. Levin has like some resolution to the spiritual quest that he's gone on. And the book narrows. This hmm. book, it seems to me, opens. Oh, interesting. And um, maybe you guys see it in a different way, but I really want to talk about, I think it opens because life is now in front of him instead of life being behind him. That's one major way in which it feels like it hmm. opens. The other other way in which it opens, I think is like that the painter seems to have been a Muslim. I think that's interesting. I think it opens up kind of more possibilities than it narrows down to. Mm. And there's a paragraph very late in the book that I was just really curious. I thought, I think when we get there, I'd love to read it and see what you guys think about it. I think if it does have a point this is the closest that i would come to saying yeah this is i think where he wanted us to end up hmm. but it still seems kind of an open point to belabor my point <laughs> um that the, the idea of it opening up as opposed to closing is is very interesting there's we all it's like the question of stasis at the end of this book is really fascinating because there is this whole world of possibility ahead of him when he leaves. And yet as a memory novel, he's looking back towards the end of his life. And he even says, I didn't know that I wasn't going to talk to any of these people anymore. And so it, it, the layers of that are, are kind of, kind of fascinating. Heidi, what do you think that he does really well in terms of crafting this whole narrative? And if you, or if you want to just want to respond to what Tim said. So I don't know who needs to hear this, but I thought what Tim said was brilliant. Um, <laughs> So I, I think that's exactly right. There's there's this sense of possibility at the end. And I, I, I think it, so I'm trying to think of how to articulate this. Tolkien has a, a concept, a term he coined uh, called eucatastrophe, uh, which means good catastrophe or good sudden change uh, that in the moment feels like bad, right? Like, and, and, but it turns the whole story around towards a redemption. And, um, and I, I was thinking as I was reading this book that it's just kind of like one long contemplation of a moment of eucatastrophe that he is, he's in this bottleneck of time, this like suspended moment of time, a month in the country. And it's very liminal, like the old thing has ended he, and, and the new thing has not yet begun. Um, and his life could go any way, but he, it's tending towards tragedy. And, um, and, and, and then as he's leaving this month in the country, he in a sense is returning, right? He's returning to his wife. And it's very clear that Vinny is going, it's very, very clear. It's explicitly stated. We will go around the same tree. She will cheat on me again. She will leave me again. Mm -hmm. And we're going to go around the same tree. Right. And, and you could look at that as a tragedy, but the tone isn't tragic. The tone is right. hopeful. 
Um, and, and so there's this something that happened was you catastrophic in this month. Right. And that's that, that it doesn't seem like it was this big, um, you know, action filled moment, but it doesn't need to be, there's like a sense of like being held, like holding space for healing. And then through that being launched back out into the world, fortified and consoled so that he can encounter the same suffering, but with a stronger spirit. Mm. And, and I, I like what, I just love what you said to him because there is this sense of possibility and of hope and of healing at the end. And it feels like it's opening him up. You feel like you're like launching him out into the world that now he's equipped to, uh, to endure and to, and to become strong, which I just loved, but it doesn't tie it up in a neat little bow. Yeah. Right. And that's what I really liked. It wasn't just like period, the end, like you can tell he still is like a man with great suffering in his life. Um, and, and so it doesn't feel like simplistic or cheap, like it's hard fought. Hmm. Um, and, and it leaves the readers with this question of like, what was so hard fought? Nothing really happened. So what was the fight? Right. Hmm. The, the big question that I have coming away from it, even having read it more than once is what was healing for him? Like, what was hmm. the thing that made him more prepared to endure the suffering and even the, the slings and arrows of his wife's misadventures, so to speak. Do you guys have a read on that or an opinion? I mean, <clears throat> this is not very sophisticated. I think it's normalcy. Mm. Um, I mean, there's a pattern to his days. I guess there was a pattern to his days when he was in the trenches of world war one. They were just, it was like hellish and ghoulish. Yeah. You know, and maybe it's like peace and community. Hmm. How do you, that, do you think there's more? Yeah. I mean, that I think we all agree that's part of it. Yeah. Do you think there's I mean, more? There's something there's more, more Heidi? Heidi's about I think to supply that the answer. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that's the, that's the structure of it, kind of the scaffolding for it. But I think that there's, which scaffolding is an intentional word because he's an art restorer, right? So he's yeah, he this time, literally yeah. standing on a form of scaffolding in order to bring, in order to uncover this art. I think there's a couple of moments that are very healing as well as that being kind of this suspended moment of pastoral kind of like peace, like you said, um, and community. And so in a way, I think it is just as simple as that, but I think that there's a couple of moments of great overcoming. And one is when he identifies the falling man, because he is the fall, like I'm the falling man. You're the fallen. We're all the falling man. We all have like a falling man in our, in the, you know, tapestry or whatever in the mural of our inner life. And he had to like face it and look at it and learn about it and restore it. I loved that. Um, and that, that you brought up the fact that the artist was a Muslim. And I think that's super significant because they are, um, they are both these, um, outsiders to the faith and heretics in a way and have been through something that makes them feel like they're beyond the pale of Christianity. Um, and yet they're participating in it and wrestling through that. And so I think that's really significant. Uh, that's a moment for him. I also think that him um, not having an affair that moment, yeah. like, and he looks back at yeah. that with regret, but I 
don't really think he does. I think like he says, that was the moment, right? When she says to him, do you believe in hell? And he said, when he looking back, he realizes that was the moment she's offering herself to him and he missed it or mm-hmm. didn't engage with it. And, and then later when they have that physical connection and then that doesn't go any further, like really the sense that I got from that, it's very, it has like a very remains of the day vibe to it. Yeah. That moment did. Yeah. And it, it, um, it was beautiful. Like so, so beautiful. A little bit of an and, inverted, um, end of the affair. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. That well, and adultery is so compelling in stories and we can <clears> talk <throat> about that. And I realize that that's throwing a huge thing out there and I'm just going to like assume it and move on. Yeah. But <laughs> it's, um, it, it is. And I, I think that one of the great things that this novel is that he's like a better man than he even knows he is. Mm, yeah. That's well right? said. Yeah. And that is so compelling to me. And like, so, and, and that is something that that internal moral center that he isn't even aware he has that's come from this month in the country, but was always like this eternal summer in him to use Camus words like that. That's the thing he's taking with him. Hmm. Do you, when you were reading this, that scene where Mm-hmm. She he reads it later as she's essentially like making herself available to him. Did you, and this is a fraught question. This is a loaded question. I'm not asking you to make a moral judgment here. I'm asking you to make a literary judgment literary, or even like a dramatic, like okay. explain a dramatic impression. Yeah. Did you find yourself wanting them like him to respond to her? Or did you find yourself saying a hold fast? Like, because I'm not, again, I'm not asking for a moral, but like you, you're, what do you feel like the book, let me put it this way. That's one of those scenes. I talked to last week about how he's a scene maker, like a great scene maker. That's one of those scenes where there is this tension in it. And sometimes you, I, I find myself, sometimes you want him to stand fast. And sometimes like the next sentence you want him to, you know, like just run away with her and like yeah. find some happiness. And that's where this book I think is really interesting because it's, it's asking these moral questions, but not in a way that like diminishes the notion of the impact of suffering of like being unhappy, like being unhappy is it's a, it's a burden. Mm. So it doesn't diminish that. Well, it also raises these moral questions. So I'm curious how you guys felt about that. Like Tim, you want to go first being the most recently married? (laughs) I didn't, I really did not want it to happen. I didn't want an affair to happen because it's like everything was set up for it to happen. And yet there was something kind of more precious, not just between Alice and her husband, but there's something more precious between Tom and Alice in the refusal. You know, like, it's like, almost like the memory of who they were for each other makes their relationship more potent. If they had gotten together, like he says, it would have changed everything and it would have changed everything for the worse, I think. So I was, I was, I just had this real calm sense. This is not going to happen. Because there's something about like the the trajectory of his path has been upward, and this would be like kind of a cliff spike downward. Like you know, who knows what would have happened in their relationship, but um, it would have been a harsh and brutal drop into um, 
and a really unkind reality. Hmm. Hmm. I, I agree with everything that you just said, but I, I also, I'm such a desire driven person. Like anytime there's like, I, I always find myself on the side of desire mm. and, and, like and then, on a gut level. Yes. Like yeah. always responding to it. Like, Oh, I just want somebody to have what they want. Right. Yeah. And, um, and not have to say no. And, and so I, I think to your question, David, of course, on a moral level, I don't want it. Right. But on, I do. And I think that that's the falling man in me. Like that's, that's what I find myself confronting when I read these novels. And I think about, it's the point of this. The, the I, that's what too. I think too. Yes. Like you want, I want that for him and I want that for her. And like when she says, when, when, when she says you believe in hell and, you know, and, and kind of the, the early church theology of hell is being something that you build with your own hands, not something that you're condemned to by God, but it's like a thing you construct for yourself. And I think we all know what that feels like. And so you want, you want the way out, right? You want him to be her savior. And then in this, and and her to be his. And, and yet that's not the tension between that, the tension between what you know to be right, you know, what you ought to do versus what you want to do, the duty and desire that creates all dramatic tension in stories, I think, especially ones about adultery and that. So I'm satisfied. I, I want him to resist, but I want him to be tempted so that I can participate in that overcoming through the story. Mm. That, yeah. Well, and that's like that dramatic tension. Like there, there is more, I was thinking about the notion of catharsis in this book, because as you said earlier, it's like not like a lot of action happens, but then you get that moment and it could have been a battle scene and where you're like, it could be like a duel or something. And you're not, one of those duels where maybe it's like, you know, Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr or something. I don't mm. know. Is that who it was? Yeah. You're not, you're not really sure who you want to win. Right. <laughs> but it's a battle where, you think that the, 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 you know, everybody in the, like the tension is in, is constructed such that if they get together, there's the, that's the catharsis, right? The, re the release of catharsis. But the reality is that as when you're reading, the real catharsis is when they don't. And that's like, so in the scene, the drama of the scene su suggests that like presupposes that the tension is released when they get together, right? But the re but the reality is that the catharsis is released by them, like for whatever reason, making the right choice, and then having to live with that. So the way he constructs that is 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 really interesting. Tim, were you going to say something a second ago though? I was just thinking about her question, like, "Do you believe in hell?" And I really wanted to read his response because, to Heidi's point. I think he believes in hell and I think he thinks that Europe made it for itself during World War One, you know, and he's the one who had to kind of um He shouts at the war makers, yeah, you know. Yeah, like, right. And he's exactly right. It's interesting that it's like I mean, Heidi, you were pointing out hell is what we make with our we can make it with our own hands. It's interesting that for him he had to basically go into the hell of somebody else's making, you know? Hmm. Um, 
Well, I was starting to, I, I was thinking about going on kind of like, what does that mean for the book as a whole? But I think like maybe we can have that conversation a little bit later if we have it at all. So I wonder, David, if we, I, I think it might be nice to read his response to Alice's question, does he yeah. believe in hell? So maybe uh, last last paragraph on 94, I'll start reading through 96. Alice Keach came next day about tea time, but I only knew when I heard someone step on the ladder. Too late again to stop me, she said. I'm here. Then she didn't speak to me for some time. I'd have been astonished if she had said, if she had, at close quarters, face to face, my wall was daunting and she was daunted. I heard her drawing a breath. Then she said, do you believe in hell, Mr. Birkin? Now that was a thought. Hell? Do you guys know how to say that word? Paskindali had been hell. Bodies split, heads blown off, groveling fear, shrieking fear, unspeakable fear. The world made mud. But I knew it was a Bible hell she had in mind, hell that went on and on, an aching, timeless hell. So I answered, well, it depends. Hell's different things to different people and different things to the same person at different times. She didn't question this. I swear she read my mind. She knew. Then what about hell on earth? She said. I'd told her I'd seen it and lived it and that that, mercifully, they usually left an exit open. Then neither of us spoke for a long time. And I thought there might be something to be said for seasons in hell because when we dragged ourselves back from the bloodless, bloodless bloodiness Life had seemed brighter than when we'd remembered it. We'd sloughed off the pals who had gone down into death. While it was day, that is. At night, in the dark, for a time, they came back, but we wanted no part of what they now were. Theirs was another world. Hell, if you cared to call it that. And then there was Vinny, his wife. That had been a sort of hell. But I'd crawled from its pit, and here, in Oxgodby, Life had flooded back, tingling to my fingertips, a world of new people who only knew as much of what had happened to me as I cared to tell them. Well, she said. Yes, I answered. I've been there. I have a map of it in my head, and Mr. Moon will bear me out. They kept sending us back there, and that hell was worse than this chap's. But even as I spoke, I knew she wasn't answered. It was neither that nor a biblical hell that made her ask. Oh, she said, I'm sorry. It was a silly question. Might as well read the next paragraph. That was the missed moment. I should have put out a hand and taken her arm and said, here I am. Ask me. Now, the real question. Tell me. While I'm here, ask me before it's too late. Is she, um, this is not just about hell on earth, World War I. It's not just about like the reality of a hell afterlife. It seems like it's also a question for her about, is it a question for her about her marriage? I mean, we, we know so little about the marriage that it seems like it might be, um, like, we don't know that it's abusive. 
we don't know anything like that. We just know it's not good. Do we, do we have reason to think that it's um, worse than not good? No, I think she's just married to a man she doesn't love. Yeah. And that is hell. Yeah. And that she's so young. What? She's 20. Mm. And, and I, you brought up, I think it was you, Tim, last week, you, you brought up, you reminded us that the, um, that the house that they live in has this like strange, um, feeling to it. Yeah. And I think the house is their marriage, right? Mm. Like there's something wrong. There's something that doesn't fit. There's something not right there. And there's some, but it's the place where she dwells and, and, and it, there's just something off about it. And that's, I don't, I don't think that, I think it's intentionally left vague. And I think that's a strength of the book because it allows us to inhabit her story, right? Like to be young and to be stuck. And, and the only way to be good is to not be happy. Mm. That is that like, that is like, to me, that's like, that is a version of hell. Mm. And, and even if he's a good man or a fine mm-hmm, man, even mm-hmm. if the husband she's married to is, and, and he's not portrayed as a wicked man. Right. And he, ta- there's the scene where he actually is yes. kind of, there's uh, a depth of soul to him. He's, mm. you start feel sorry for too. him. Yeah. Yeah. The, but the interesting thing is this could go like, it could also be the kind of question that's like a leading sort of provocative question as like a question of guilt. Like, do you believe in hell? Do you believe right. that if we were to do something now, oh, would be, I didn't even think about that. Punishment to hear, yeah, and, and right. like about hell that. is hovering over, hell is literally hovering. Like there's this hellish scene hovering over this whole book, literally yeah. and figuratively. Um, and uh, you know that that the question of guilt, I think, is hovering over. Um, much of the book too, because of like the guilt that's attended to that, that attends desire, like desires that are disordered or whatever you want to say, um, yeah. or just the sense of like being unhappy when you, you're doing the right thing as, mm-hmm. as Heidi said. And yeah. I think, I think that his confession that his own marriage is a sort of hell uh, that he's crawled from the pit of, is like, it's interesting that he says in this scene, I, I, that was sort of hell, but I'd crawled from its pit and here life had flooded back, tingling to my fingertips, a world of new people who only knew as much of what had happened to me as I cared to tell them. Mm-hmm. But then by the end of it, he goes back. So he says, I've crawled out of that hell, but then at the end of the book, he goes back. So has, is the scene that he's going back to no longer hellish or is it just what Heidi said earlier that he's learned to bear it better? Is something changed in him that makes it not a hell by the end of the book? What do you think, Heidi? I think yes. I think that's it because it's going to be the same. She wants him back, and he's like explicitly stated she'll just do it again. again. Yeah, and and you don't. Yeah, and and we don't know. Maybe this is this is a month in the country. It's clearly significant. but there's also a sense of like, do we really believe that he's now going to be okay? I think he's been fortified to endure, but 
that question of like happy and good is a haunting one to me, like very, very haunting to me. And I like novels that explore it because I, I respond like so strongly to that. And, mm. um, and you have to choose good, like, and you have to choose good. But if the classes, if, if the classical philosophers are right, and if St. Paul is right, and if C.S. Lewis is right, and right, then, then we're put here to be happy. Mm. So like the goal of life is happiness, but you can't actually have happiness without goodness. But sometimes it feels like you have to choose, yeah. and which means you have to have some kind of eternal perspective, which remains kind of the lingering question mark over this book. And so I'm wondering if someone, how how a secular reader would respond to the end of this book, right? Because I find it so hopeful because I want him to be happy, but the only way he can be happy is to be good. And, um, but I also am like frail. And so I'm very drawn to the wrong solutions too. So um, like I wanted him to kiss her, right? I wanted him to talk about it. That's, and I kept comparing it to remains of the day. And I, I just found remains of the day so hauntingly sad to me because they never talk about it. Yeah. Like he never tells her how he feels. And I wanted him to so badly in that book. I wanted her to know that he did love her, but, and you're not really sure whether he didn't tell her in remains of the day because he was an honorable man or because he was a coward. And in this book, there's at least an acknowledgement on both sides that they, they, and, and then they reject it and move on. I don't know if that's right or not, but I'm still fallen enough to want that for yeah. them. <laughs> like I'm still falling from grace enough to well, just he at least have that said. <laughs> so at the end of the book, though, he talks about the way mem- memory, the memory of the summer is a sealed room furnished by the past, airless, still, ink long, dry on a put down pen. And it, you know, the air, it calls to mind the skeleton that they find, right? Like they have to like, it's been well-preserved in the field because there was no air within the, within the box they uncover. And so is the, this well-preserved memory, which she says things like occasionally tugs at the heart or um, sometimes you remember these things and you can only wait for the pain to pass. So there's this very dif- distinct sense of nostalgia, like the real sense of not the, in terms of what the word, the, the pain of something you miss or whatever um, the pain of what is it going home or missing home or what does nostalgia actually mean uh, nostos is homecoming isn't it homecoming yeah homecoming. yeah so nostalgia is like the pain of is it the pain of missing home I, I, so I find like the, the idea that like he has this nostalgic pain where sometimes he has to wait to pass and that's where the novel ends to be fascinating because has the memory then, this well-preserved memory, been what has gotten him through? Mm. And how do you read the end? You talked about it being hopeful, Heidi. Yeah. You think that you think the memory has been an empowering? I do. I do think that the memory has been empowering for him. But I also think that there were some real, there was a real interior growth, I guess like a real strengthening, like a real movement. It's not just about the memory. There were some a, a so, true eucatastrophe. So then is the trial itself, so to speak, coming out of the trial unscathed like and mm. doing the right thing? Is that, is that, 
is that a, is that what gave him healing at the end? Because he's like, I decided it was time to go home. And mm-hmm. the, uh, like oh. he had restored the tarnished image, right? There is this like a very Imago day sense to it. There is a restoration of the internal image and a facing of the falling man and a naming to that um, across time and space. Um, and, and then a rejection of the temptation. And that to me is a very spiritually fortifying journey for enduring suffering. If no one is holy without suffering. However, I, I am perfectly willing to acknowledge I'm thinking like a Christian and interpreting like a Christian. And, and that may not be the only way to read the book. Can I give, can I give, um, what struck me at the end, which I think is going to be a, not a very Christian reading. I am struck by the fact that our painting is, it's a, it's a, it's a hellscape. I mean, it's, it's a mural depicting souls being pulled down to hell and yes, some ascend into heaven. It's being done not just by an artist of like supreme skill, but by a Muslim. I mean, a Muslim who can't be buried in the churchyard and that means a Muslim that is being buried outside of the faith. And that means he's one of the people that's being pulled down to hell. I mean, and surely the painter knows this, whether or not the painter believes this or not is another question. But if in the medieval mode, this man is being pulled down to hell and he is doing an incredible job at depicting this thing which in some ways kind of implicates him, right? I mean, this is like really potent. Like, and I think my conclusion, I'm just going to say what I think that our author, if there is a point where he might be going, the old world that existed before World War I is now gone. And I think that our soldier, Tom Birkin, knows it in some way. Um, And now a new world is opening up. We don't know what that new world is going to look like, but I just wonder if it it just seems to me there might be sort of a a statement that that opening up of the new world is a good thing. Right? I mean, do you get the kind of like how I would make that argument from what Carr has put down in the book? I'm not saying whether you agree with it or not, but I'm just saying, is this possibly what he's, hmm. he, he wants for us to see. And I also, I, I, the fact that moon is gay. I just think that like, that might be part of it also that there's this kind of like opening up of this world. We don't know what it's going to look like yet. Um, but it has to acknowledge these two characters. I do agree with that. I think that you, I don't think that's incompatible with real Christianity though. And right, I'll say right, that right, 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 right. Like, yeah. right. Um, but 
the whole idea of like whitewashing the the primal truth, right? That that the church is hidden. The church is actually hiding access to the judgment scene. And mm. if the judgment scene is an interior landscape that includes uh, aspects that are rising up and aspects that are falling down and a, a Christ as a judge who is harsh, right? This is a judging Christ yeah. on there. Um, and so I do think that there's an indictment of the traditional, oh, I don't want to say traditional because you know, you know me, I like tradition of the superficial conventional understanding of Western well Christianity well that is embedded within this novel. To me, that's not a problem because I don't think that's the true faith anyway. Yeah. I'm fine with that being exposed as right. whitewashed because the real thing is what's painted on the mural. Mm. And so if it takes going off to war and being an outsider to actually encounter that, cool. Mm. And I, and, and the whole thing with, with that's true, probably for all of us, right. Um, in some way we have to get past the whitewash and, and participate in the restoration of the true image mm. that has been lost and obscured over time. And, and that is, I think that is a profoundly Christian message, whether our author intended it that way right. or not. Right. Um, however, to your point, I do think on the social level of interpretation, which is very, very important within this novel, I think that what you're getting at is exactly right. Good. I think so too. <laughs> I didn't, I was like, I don't know if I'm like stretching this or, but, but it I felt just, like, it just felt like the, the symbol of moon being a gay man and of our artist being a Muslim, it just didn't seem like those were incidental symbolically. But they also, there's also this, this sense throughout the book of uh, valuing the medieval. Like something return. Per, like yes. pre-modern Very is, traditional. Is, mm -hmm. is like, like, you know, better than, maybe, maybe that's the idea though. Like, can, can whatever we have coming return us to something that was before we blew ourselves up. Well, and I he think doesn't his... hold the city up. Like he does not have the modernist, like rejection of the past that, and I think that's true to him. Like he's, I mean, he's going to this tiny little village and being healed by traditional English country life. Yeah. And, 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 and he says, Carr said he wanted a to medieval write an painting. Idyllic. Right. Carr said he wanted to what? Well, he said he wanted to write an idol, like, like a book that was like, you know, an I D Y L L. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Like that he, he said in the foreword of the book, it says during any prolonged activity, one tends to forget original intentions. But I believe that when making a start on a month in the country, my idea was to write an easygoing story, a rural idol along the lines of Thomas Hardy's under the greenwood tree and to establish the right tone of voice to tell such a story. I wanted its narrator to look back regretfully across 40 or 50 years, but recalling a time irrevocably lost, still feel a tug at the heart. Mm. And I wanted it to ring true. Yeah. I mean this, okay. The paragraph that I was, that's on the last page of the book that I was hoping to read, I think now might be the time. So for me, page 135, mm -hmm. we can ask and ask, but we can't have again what's, what once seemed ours forever. The way things looked, that church alone in the fields, a bed on the belfry floor, 
a remembered voice, a touch of the hand, a loved face. They've gone, and you can only wait for the pain to pass. That clearly is about his memory of this month in the country. Mm-hmm. It really does seem like it's also his vision of the medieval world. It seems like it's an overlay for that as well. Mm. Because he does have respect for the medieval world. My hunch is that he's saying, I, I have to admit, I'm, I'm probably still real be, really being influenced by our week together with the Close Reads crew. I just think of, of World War I as the signal event, not just of like the 20th century, but of the close of, in some ways, like the close of Christendom. You know, this time that um, the Christian world and the political order, kind of like church and society, were kind of on the same project. I really, in my kind of understanding of history, that closed with World War I. So I have to admit, I am reading my own kind of telling of Western history into this, and it may be kind of swaying my hermeneutic of this paragraph that I just read. Well, but for the time being, I'm going to stick with it. <laughs> well, I do think that like one of the key elements of this book is his kinship with this painter. Like he, yeah. he has this like at, at, at absolute worst, he has an appreciation for the skill and the circumstances that this guy had to mm-hmm. live in. Mm-hmm. The skill he used to paint and the circumstances he had to live in is this, you know, kind of secret secret figure. Yeah. Um, and I think his, his sense of kinship with that person is, is, um, quite moving, but also tying him to this ancient thread, maybe mm-hmm. ancient's the wrong word, but with this old, old thread, yeah, all I yeah, meant yeah, by yeah. ancient was old. I didn't really mean like Homer ancient. Hey, this brings up a question about the falling man. So, uh, my mom's did this book in their book club a while back. And the debate came up about the falling man. Would you like to hear what the question of this debate was? Oh, yeah. Did the falling man fall and die? Or does it suggest that he commits suicide? Huh. That's a potent question. I think it's deliberately unclear, but that there is a suggestion that it was intentional. Yeah. What do you think, David? I... I, I would, I don't know. I think that most good books, that would be the case, (laughs) which is a bit of a cop out. I think that the bigger, the more, the question that comes off of that though, is what is the impact one way or the other of, of like, what is the meaning of, of Mm -hmm. him having made the choice one way or the other? Like if, is the, it does, does him, falling have anything to do with falling i mean like falling or jumping or whatever have a is it part of why he has a kinship with this this Mm. figure what do you tim what do you think i mean this is my first time considering it i can't believe that it didn't occur to me that he might have done this that that the painter might have done this on purpose having heard it it makes so much sense within the tapestry of the book. It would make so much sense as his demise was self-inflicted. This great painter 
executing all of his gifts with magisterial skill on a painting that functionally condemns him. I mean, yeah, I can absolutely say how that would drive one not just to the precipice, but over the precipice. Go ahead, Heidi. Well, and he, it was the artist who chose to paint himself as the falling man, right? Like he could have chosen to be a soul and ascending to God. Um, And the fact that it was a forced conversion um, further, I think, bolsters and complicates your point, Tim, about the, the social commentary that's Mm. embedded within this novel. Um, because you have this masterpiece, right. And if there had been no forced conversion, there would be no image at all to restore. However, it created within our artist, a desire to escape and a self-loathing and, um, or if it's not a self-loathing, then it's a middle finger, frankly, right? Yeah, and then right. Um, it's it's an act of rage. Um, and so I think it does a lot to the story to, to if it was a suicide, but it also, and so I, I think I kind of like, if I had to pick a side, I would land on that. But I like the ambiguity of it um, yeah. a lot. And because it works symbolically just as well as if he's accidentally lost, like on the precipice of completion as well. Mm. So one thing that I've been thinking about is if given the the happiness that Birkin has in this place, it's almost like he wouldn't like blame this suffering artist for ending their lives and going to their resting place in this place that was so happy for him. Like, is it his own way? Would it be his own way of not having to endure the suffering anymore? And instead of, instead of putting the memory in a box and an airtight box, instead he, he, in this place of happiness goes to his, his death Mm -hmm. to prolong that happiness, if you will. There's on 83, a really key passage, I think, um, says this steady rhythm of living and working got into me so that I felt part of it and had my place a foot in both present and past. I was utterly content. So he's got his foot in the present, put in, foot mm-hmm. in the past. He's content. He's straddling these, these times, right? But I didn't know this until one day Alice Keach said, you're happy, Mr. Birkin. You're not on edge anymore. Is it because the work is going well? Of course she was right. Anyway, partly right. Standing up there on the platform before a great work of art, feeling kinship with its creator, cozily knowing that I was a sort of impresario conjuring and teasing back his work after 400 years of darkness. But that wasn't all of it. There was this weather, this landscape, thick woods, roadsides, deep in grass and wildflowers. And to south and north of the Vale, low hills, frontiers of a mysterious country. So uh, the the country itself has this healing property. So on the one hand, he is he is one foot in each generation, right? And then on the other hand, he has this kinship with his creator. And then on the third hand, <laughs> there's the there's the mystery of the country itself. And I wonder 
if that he has this kinship because he recognizes something about that artist and what maybe they both felt is the mystery of the country itself. Mm. Um, and so what the artist does is becomes kind of part of the country. And so moon is like uncovering that he's like revealing the sort of, he's revealing this, this figure that's been living literally under the, under the ground for all this time. Um, we got to talk about moon eventually at some point, but maybe that's a Q and a thing. Anyway, I just think that passage is really important. And I think one of the reasons he evolves for her, for Alice, is because she recognizes his suffering and she recognizes that he's being healed. Like she sees that in him. And mm. so he begins to truly, from that kind of point on, like he begins to, he, he begins, like it turns into like a, he begins to desire her because she sees something in him. And, mm -hmm. you know, part of desiring something is seeing it. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. or maybe I don't know if I should, maybe I don't know if I want to put it quite like that, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I don't know if logically that works, but yeah, no, I think that absolutely logically works. You, well, you either see something, you either desire some, something cause you see it wrong or oh, oh, oh. desires, so you see something rightly and thus desire it. Um, but that's kind of where the order factor comes into it, right? <laughs> Okay, yeah. one question before we go. We can talk about Moon in the Q&A, unless you guys want to comment on what I was just saying. No, let's talk about Moon in the Q&A. Okay. Uh, 131. I didn't know what I hoped might happen, nor how long I stayed there, nor have I any recollection of returning to the Belfry and to bed, since I sometimes have wondered if it was a dream. Why does he put that in there? That's that kind, kind of, of a loaded qualifier? line. Since I have sometimes wondered if it was a dream. This is right after the scene with Alice where yeah, he right. doesn't when he act. When he goes back to, it's when he goes back to their house, right? And she was gone or was it right after their kind of uh, like. He, he goes to the house the next day. So okay, after okay, that okay. night, he walks around town. He thinks he sees her maybe in the window. But yeah, that's out, right. That's right. Curtain. Um, but he hasn't taken action. And then he's kind of realizing that he'll never have that chance again. And mm -hmm. like, he's in a bit of a daze because he's turned down a sort of form of at least earthly happiness. Right. So he's in a daze, but then he says some, since I've sometimes wondered if it was a dream. So why does he, why does he even bring up the notion that that could have been a dream or any of this could have been a dream? I, I think that moment, it seems like the it, since I've sometimes wondered if it was a dream, I thought it was referring to his like trip back to her house when it was empty, mm -hmm. not to their interaction. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that kind of makes sense to me because uh, I should have formulated this in my head before I started speaking. You know, how there's <laughs> like some people that like formulate their thoughts while they're talking. I am totally not one of those people. <laughs> Um, I think about it before and then I say it. Um, so I think that, that that's, the house, and that's why yeah. sometimes I kill time when right. I ask a question. Cause he knows that about it. you. That's right. I appreciate that. Um, so the house itself has this weight of meaning. It's cause that whole experience when he goes to their house and the house is off, which we are, we already talked about a couple of times. It, it's such a strange thing that whenever you counter in that 
whenever you encounter that in a literary novel, something is just like, that was very weird. And what, why did it need that? Usually it's because it's going to come back and some, it's, it's symbolic in some way, or it carries some kind of weight of meaning or, or something later is going to come back and cycle back and refer to that um, again. And so this, when he goes to the house and the house is empty, it's like, she is, um, it's like her marriage, everything that she represented is gone, which is different than um, him being with her and saying, no, that's like a physical thing, right? But to let go of the sim of what that, of the weight of meaning of the house felt to him like a real void, like a true emptiness. Mm. And um, like that was the moment he realized she was gone. And, and then it felt unreal. Um, partly because I think whenever you have like an interlude in your life, it feels timeless in a way, like the very temporariness of it has this quality of timelessness to it. Um, and, and so I think that that is why he's like, I just, I feel like maybe it was a dream. Like maybe, maybe it's so symbolic in my head that, I didn't even go there. It mm. was just, it was just always a symbolic moment. So anyway, I know that doesn't make a lot of sense, but that's what I, it, that, I don't know. I'm stumbling through it because I've had those experiences before when later I think, did that really, did that really mm -hmm. happen? Because it's so loaded with symbolic meaning. It's almost like it, it, the disappearance of it was, was not even embodied. It was just in my head. I don't know. So I take all that out. <laughs> no, that that's great. It's great. I my thought, Heidi, was I've had moments like that also, and they're almost always after like um, a crisis. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Like you were going to say like three cocktails after three cocktails, well, which is a crisis of a sort. Um, <laughs> right. And it almost yeah, made me think, um, like to use like some super fancy, like contemporary lingo, it's like a trauma response, right? Yeah, I mean, like it fugue. did. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and I thought, but I don't know if that really works. Is it really like a trauma response? Be, I mean, in some sense, yeah, sure. What if this was the love of his life and it's never going to happen now? So I can imagine that, but it seems almost a little bit not this the not the sort of response that one would have from losing the love of one's life. It almost it feels like the sort of response one would have um, after like surviving a bear attack or being in the trenches of World War One or what have you. You know, so. I mean, the, the paragraph is really powerful, but it's also kind of, for me, a little bit free-floating as to why it's, why it occurred. Obviously, it occurred in response to him not getting with Alice. But the kind of like size of the response and the form of the response to me seems a little bit asymmetrical to him not getting with Alice. On the next page, he says that, you know, he, the next morning he goes to her house and he's ringing the bell over and over again. And it talks about, he uses words like madness and savagery and these things that have come over him. And then he says it was the worst moment of his life. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. This is an interesting thing for someone to say who has been in the trenches. 
Yeah. Um, now I knew that it was, he says, what came over me? A sort of madness, I suppose, because I gripped that knob more firmly and dragged at it again and again so that the bell's sound came hurrying along corridors, round corners, down staircases, echoing and re-echoing, spreading through the dark and empty house like ripples of her laughter. But now I knew that it was laughter calling to me from the past, clearly, playfully, yet poignantly sad. It was the worst moment of my life. It was the worst moment of my life. It, it makes me think of this is more savagely, despairingly. Is this more about a, like a recollection of Vinny, of his wife? You know, is that what this is like prompting in him? I don't know. Can you, can you expand on that? Because, yeah. Obviously, the, the, his wife leaving him was tremendously painful. This, is the, this relationship that he has with Alice is the closest thing that he's had since his wife left him. All of the kind of like longing, all of the sense of betrayal. What if that's the thing that's kind of like flooding back to him? What if, you know, it's not about oh, the see. war. It's about like Vinny left him. Hmm. Like it reminds him. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I'm, you can tell I'm kind of groping a little bit because like I said, I think that his response to me seems it like it's not just about Alice. It seems like there's something else going on there. Alice prompts it. I, definitely. I think, I think at least part of it is that you, you go to war and you expect it to be bad and it was and worse than, mm. I mean, hell, like yeah, hell yeah. on earth. War is hell. I mean, World War One was, I really just can't think of anything. Like I, it I was the worst. It I was can't worse even than World believe War that humans endured that. Like young yeah. people, like my son is 16 and like, I, I just think of him in two years enduring hell on earth. Like, and, mm. and I, it's heartbreaking to me, but you, you go there knowing it will be bad. And then he, and his wife obviously has a history of fragility and, um, and this isn't a surprise, right? Although I, again, I can't think of much worse than that either for a man, right? Like, for a man to be cheated on, for a woman to be unloved. Like those are like just yeah. terrible, terrible things. Yeah. Um, and, and then, but, but with Alice, like he could have had it and then it was lost to him and he doesn't know why he turned it down, mm. which I think it's cause he's a good man. Yeah. And he doesn't even know that about himself, but he doesn't know why. So in a sense, it's like, this is the one thing that could have helped in my broken crater of a life and now it's gone and I don't know how to look for it again. And now it, it's just, that's like finality like that. of consolation. Like is like, I can imagine he just felt bereft in a way that any other suffering didn't make him feel. Yeah. I like that, Heidi. I like that. The very next thing you get is um, he says he got through the rest of the day. And then during the night he gets up or a wind got up. So he's in this, he's in this church. No, it gets really windy and they're driving gusts at the tower so that the bell above him begins to stir. So he's just said this, the worst day of his life, the worst moment of his life. And then during the night, the bell stirs. It was no more than a thin sound paired from its rim. 
half asleep, I wondered what the significance might be. So he's thinking like an artist there almost, right? Like he's seeing the world in interpretive terms, like what is the significance of this image? But in the morning, it had become no more than a sound heard in the night. And then it was one of those marvelously clear days which come after a good blow. The trees have stripped down to their bones and heaped leaves. And he says that there's even things about the village that have been revealed to him that he'd never seen before. And then he knows he has to leave. What do you think of this bell? And that's the last question I have before we go. Let's just, maybe a few hypotheses here. We'll make some final thoughts on the bell. The, basically the doorbell. Is that what you mean? The, the bell that's like ringing it's, throughout it's the house? The, it's No, no, no. So that's bell, right before. He's pulling on that bell. And uh-huh. then the next day during the night, the storm blows and the, the bell in the church starts chiming. Mm. So he, so the night before he's pulling on the bell and it's like this despairing moment. Yeah. But then the following night, the wind, the storm be, picks up and the bell in the church begins to, to blow or to, to, to chime. And he wonders what's the significance of this. Do you have any reading on that? Any thoughts on this? You think Heidi, do you? I mean, I think whenever I hear church bells in a story or in real life, it, it's a call. It's, it's, it's on the spiritual level. It's, it's a call to the partake in the sacramental life of the church, but on a more um, kind of mundane and ordinary person level, it's, it's the call of tradition, the call of the past. Right. Um, and, and there's, and, and then it also, I think has this for whom the bell tolls kind of like weight of, Mark time marching towards death. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. Church bells always are like a very complex, yeah, um, kind of like resonance. I mean, yeah, there you go. Like there's a resonance to a bell, especially a church bell, in a story. Yeah, there's a lot of different ways you could read these. Tim, do you have any? Yeah, any thoughts? I thought the the same thing. I mean, it's kind of um, the symbology of this bell could kind of like move backwards in time or it could move forward and forward in time. Ask not for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. You know, it's a, it's a kind of like call to attention. Um, but I don't, I don't, I I'm, don't feel bold enough or convicted enough to make an argument. This is what's going on with that bell. Yeah. Same. But this is one of those books where he makes so many connections and he answers one image with, a sort of tweaked version of that image somewhere else um, that leads to all these really compelling questions and conversations. And it's a, it's like for a, for a slim little book, it's very much uh, rereadable, I guess. I was just going to say the same thing, David. This is a book that I would do well to read again. I, I kind of, every second read opens more. I think this one would open a lot more. Yeah, it's it's really good. It's a good book. <laughs> well, so good. Thanks to you both for uh, for I suppose convincing me that it was worth doing here on the show. Like insisting, insisting. Oh man, I'm so glad. Now I know I'm why we were so insistent. <laughs> well, uh, we will be off next week, as we said, because we're both at this, all three of us are at this conference, and then we will do the Q and A. So Heidi's going to post that thread. Is that right, Heidi? Yes. Okay, I'm great. So going to so do that'll that. be up today. We're recording on July seventh. That means July eighth. That thread will be up, and then. We'll have two weeks, and then the so it, it, the week of the twentieth, um, we will record the Q and A, and we'll cover as many questions as we can. Then after that, the week of the twenty seventh, we're diving into Loris, uh, which of course is a book that Heidi loves. So schedule on that coming soon. Um, thanks to everyone who's listening. Don't forget that you can check out 
uh, our bonus podcasts over on um, Close Reads HQ on Substack. It's closereads.substack.com. And you can listen to Sean Johnson, Heidi and I discussing East of Eden. The third episode of that should be up uh, next week, I believe. Um, and uh, lots of written content over there. Heidi's column, book reviews, got some some interesting book reviews coming from some guest writers and uh, got, a, got a bunch of stuff coming. So um, with that, for Tim McIntosh and for Heidi White, I am David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.